I am like the roaring lion in the dream. My roaring will wake you up from this dream unto reality. This is The Lion's Roar, the DSI podcast all about understanding the teachings of Satya Sai Baba in their truest form. Sai Ram, I'm Pradhani. Pack your bags, it's time to travel on this holistic journey to help us unravel, to seek the treasure that we know not, holding the hand of our guide, our God. Episode 12, Fiery Fortitude and Grazing Attitudes. Discover a whole new you, reinvent yourself, take charge of your life. You know those motivational ads you come across for transformational fitness challenges? Those seemingly impossible, see-it-to-believe-it, eight-week challenges in which you're put through the ringer. You're bombarded with starkly different before and after images of people who've succeeded before you that make you think to yourself, yeah, I can do this too. I'm going to do this for me. But then week three comes along and that day one zeal has well and truly started to fizzle. And to be honest, you probably would have given up a while ago if it weren't for your taskmaster PT who is constantly on your case, waving that after photo in your face and pushing you to keep going. What drives us to keep going? The end goal, isn't it? It's only when we have a clear vision of our end goal in sight that we can maintain that sustained effort and persevere. So, do we have an idea of what we are working towards with our spiritual efforts? What does our after picture look like? Constant bliss? Genuine contentment without any reason? Perhaps it's not being ruffled by anything that happens around us. A life free from worry. Wow, hashtag goals. Could there be anything more fulfilling or worth striving for? This after picture of self-realization is the ultimate goal that our divine PT, our Swami, is slowly preparing us for in this final part of his third discourse of the Summer Shower series. In any kind of transformational, life-changing challenge, we need to carefully regulate all aspects of our lifestyle, from our sleep patterns to our socialising habits and that dreaded phrase, our meal plan. In this discourse, Swami too draws on the significance of the food we eat and the influential role it plays in our journey to the goal. Swami explains that those who live on vegetarian diets are less prone to disease than those who eat meat, as animal food is actually incompatible with the needs of the human body. We might think that we can only get a decent amount of protein from meat, but in fact, Swami draws our attention to many other sources of food that provide far better quality proteins. Things like vegetables, pulses, milk and curd. I'm sure that what Swami is saying here isn't news to you. How many times have we heard of the nutritious benefits of vegetarianism and the numerous and varied alternatives to meat? I mean, there are even Netflix documentaries exploring this point alone. But here's the thought. Why is it that we are quick to watch and read those mainstream articles or videos Yet we struggle to digest and put into practice what our beloved Swami has been saying to us from day dot. The physical effect of a non-vegetarian diet is one thing, but it also has a detrimental effect on our mind. Swami sums up the correlation so beautifully. Food, head, God. When we partake of non-vegetarian food, our animal tendencies are aroused. You know the saying, you are what you eat? 
Well, in a similar way, Swami is highlighting here the subtleties associated with the food we eat and how it can directly influence and impact our thoughts. Our eternally compassionate PT even proceeds to explain that we need food which supplies us an amount of energy equal to roughly a calorie a minute. He advises that young people have become habituated to eat more than the required intake. What's the result of all this excess? Indigestion, sleeplessness and all manner of ailments and illnesses. Swami points out that in days gone by, our ancestors would consume two meals a day and ancient sages used to eat only one meal a day. Most of us, on the other hand, can't even resist the urge to snack around the clock, let alone limit ourselves to just three meals a day. Having said this, Swami cautions that while we should pay attention and observe moderation in food and other living habits, we shouldn't develop undue attachment to the body. He also mentions that we suffer ill health due to psychological reasons. Have you heard of white coat syndrome? It's what happens when people go to the doctor and get their blood pressure checked, but they're so worried about the check that their BP reads high, even though it's normal the rest of the time. In the same way, Swami says, if we keep worrying that we are not going to be able to sleep as we hit the sack, then clearly we won't be able to sleep. He says, Always have a positive outlook and self-confidence that your health is all right. Our ancients wished to live long for the sake of godly life and therefore tried to preserve the health of their bodies as well as minds accordingly. Swami draws an epic example in this regard. At the time of the Kurukshetra war in the Mahabharata, Krishna was 86 and Arjuna, the heroic Pandava warrior, was 84 years old. Bhishma, the acclaimed commander-in-chief of the Kaurava army, who fought fiercely for nine days on the battlefield, was 116 years old, or young, I, I guess I should say. How's that for something to chew on? By the way, this wasn't something only possible in the Krishna era. Swami's own grandfather, Kundamaraju, lived till a mature 116 years old. In a discourse in Kodekano on May 6, 1999, Swami tells us that though a centenarian, Kondamaraju used to walk without a walking stick all the way from the village to Prashanti Mandir and back every morning and evening to have his darshan. His eyesight too was in great condition. Swami explains that their youthful condition and the way in which they conducted themselves with such vigour, vitality and valour was due to their mental strength their nourishing food, and above all, their self-confidence. As we heard last episode, this is confidence in the real self, or Atma. He continues that today, such spiritual fortitude is totally lacking. We can see the truth of this statement for ourselves, can't we? In comparison to the examples we just looked at, we're experiencing back pain, neck pain, even pinky finger pains at the ripe old age of 30. Our attitude is everything. Swami points out that today our self-confidence follows the sign curve of life. With every bump and jump, our Atma Vishwasam, or faith, takes a hit. Swami says, You may worship a picture as a god, but not god as a picture. 
If their wishes are fulfilled, they will install ten pictures of God instead of one in their shrine room. If their desires are not complied with, they will remove even the one picture that they used to worship previously. This is an indication of the waywardness of their mind. This is not the right attitude. You may worship a picture as God, but not God as a picture. When Swami points it out like this, it's embarrassingly clear that he is treated like a wish-fulfilling genie or a merchant with whom we're merely trading desires. It's become all about instant gratification, where if our momentary wills and whims aren't satisfied, we immediately blame God. Swami questions, If your mind wavers from moment to moment, how can there be steadiness or stability in life? He says we must endeavour to develop the courage to face the vicissitudes of life, which we know will come. We have to face the devil. Despite this, Swami says, A devotee should be ready to gladly accept anything as God's gift. It all makes sense on paper, but how does this translate in real life? In Prashanti Vahini, Swami lists a few moving examples of devotees of great fortitude who bore all the calamity, torture and travail that was their lot in life. Nandana, one of the shining examples on that list, an unlettered labourer, shows us the meaning of what it is to accept everything as God's gift. On the banks of the river Kolidam is the village Adenur. In this fertile village was a slum that gave birth to a pure pearl, a true devotee of God, Nandanar. He sustained himself on a portion of the crops that came from the land which he leased. He also made a living out of providing animal skins and other animal parts for making drums and various string instruments. He was a simple devotee and he loved God as his sole refuge. As a product of the caste rules at the time, Nandanar was unable to enter the temple of his beloved Maheshwara. He would stand outside any temple he came across, chanting, singing and dancing in divine ecstasy with his mind fixed on the divine feet of his Lord. Nandana's love could not be understood by anyone but he whom he loved. The people of the village, both his equals and those of a higher caste, questioned his ways. Unaffected by all the troubles they heaped upon him, Nandana's mind was ever fixed on his beloved. So pure was his devotion that at the temple in Tirupungur, the idol of Nandi, which normally sits directly in front of Shiva, was asked by the Lord himself to move aside so that Nandanar could see his form. For one who finds joy in this world, there are many things to seek. But for one whose heart is constantly pining for the Lord, he seeks only his beloved. Heart quivering in childlike joy and anticipation, Nandanar travelled to as many holy places of worship as he could, seeking his Lord. After worshipping the Lord from the periphery, Nandanar would dig tanks or ponds near the temple as an act of service to his Lord. A desire to see the divine dance of Nataraja in the far-off Chidambaram temple slowly overcame Nandanar. 
How can one explain the ways of the Lord? As we look back now, perhaps it was really Shiva's desire to see his devotee that ignited that all-consuming desire in Nandana. Nandana was not able to eat, sleep or continue his work. His body was literally burning with a desire for God. With tears of love in his eyes, he would tell his companions, I will surely go to Chidambaram tomorrow. One day, he actually left everything behind and headed towards the temple. Arriving at Chidambaram, Nandana walked around the huge temple grounds and realised that he couldn't even see the Sanctum Sanctorum from the gates. He was afraid to enter the temple on account of his caste and instead circumambulated it day and night. Nandana offered a prayer to his beloved. Lord, I want to see your cosmic dance, but how can I? On account of my birth, I cannot enter this sacred shine. Exhausted from it all, he fell asleep. Little did he know that his beloved Lord was weaving a tapestry of dreams that Nandanar couldn't have imagined possible. Shiva appeared to Nandanar in his dream and bade him thus, O noble soul, do not grieve, you will come to me, submerge in the fire and arise. Escorted by the Brahmins, you will come to me. Bursting with the joy of seeing his love, Nandanar woke up. Meanwhile, Shiva had also appeared to the priests of the temple and told them of the events to come. A large fire was lit outside in the southern wall of the temple. Nandanar went round it, lifted his hands in adoration and meditating on the dancing feet of the Lord plunged into its flames. Straight away he relinquished the illusory body and emerged from the flames like a hallowed sage with matted tresses, proving the purity of his devotion despite the supposed impurity of his caste. The temple priests folded their hands in reverence and led the effulgent devotee into the Lord's presence. Nandanar went into a divine ecstasy and was completely absorbed in the divine dance of his Nataraja. A dazzling light was seen and with that, Nataraja absorbed Nandanar into him. Nandanar crossed the mountain of hurdles in his path with such unshakable one-pointed devotion that he is now celebrated as a saint. While we may not be able to relate to Nandanar's circumstances, I'm sure we've all been through times when it's felt like everything was going against us. During those times, can we, like Nandanar, hold on to the Lord and not be thrown off course by the bumps and jumps of life? When Padma Kasturi, Professor Kasturi's daughter, asked him, Why do you keep going around propagating Swami? What has he done for us? Look at the plight of your wife who has been paralysed for 11 years. My marital problems are a constant source of sorrow. On top of this, you have lost both your sons. What has Swami done for you? Kasturi replied without an iota of doubt, 
Swami is God. Everything he does is perfect. This, brothers and sisters, is the right attitude that Swami is referring to. Swami rightly questions, can you get sugar by merely requesting the sugar cane instead of crushing it to extract the juice from it? Even if it is the best kind of diamond, will it shine in all its effulgence unless it is subjected to cutting and polishing? In the same way, Swami foregrounds that it is only by enduring trials and struggles, hardships and losses, that a person's real worth will shine forth. Swami has his own definition of what real devotion is. Real devotion is that which is accompanied by firm faith and is steadfast and unchanging under all circumstances. Only then does one deserve to get the fruits of real devotion. Swami, the creator of this psychosomatic apparatus, affirms that the Lord has not created anything without a purpose. Our mind, its thoughts, our senses, all of it has its purpose. Swami urges us to first understand the inner workings of these elements. It is because we haven't understood the mysteries and subtleties of each of these that we are struggling with all our spiritual endeavours. Without knowing the power that the mind wields over us, what is the efficacy of meditation? Though we may outwardly appear to be seated in a comfortable meditation posture, by allowing our mind to wander off to yesterday's happenings and tomorrow's unfoldings, Swami points out that we are doing nothing more than sitting in sheer idleness and simply perpetuating the untruth that the mind is so cleverly building. Without knowing what we are looking for, we will simply end up like Columbus, finding what we think is India and claiming that Native Americans are Indians. These discourses are essentially a map delineating what the senses are, how the mind operates, how the body works. Once we decode this map, then we can put our efforts in the right direction. And how sweet that Swami not only draws the map, he holds our hand and journeys with us until we reach the final treasure. Seeking our dear size love and blessings, we wrap up this season. Swami, you are the means, you are the path, you are what we seek. May we arise, awake and stop not till the goal is reached. Jay Sai Ram. And until next time, stay awesome. Inspired.